Welcome to the Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insider experience with the subject. As you know, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Today, we're chatting with Colby Martin. Colby has been on the show twice before, and he returns to chat about shame, dancing, and the greatest showman. We apologize in advance that some of my vocal quality isn't the greatest, but with that said, enjoy today's episode with Colby Martin. And our guest is our old friend, Colby Martin. Welcome back, Colby. Hello, Joseph. If I can give you a bit of feedback, I feel like that intro, you've done it a few times now. It lost a little pizzazz from the last time I was on. A little pizzazz? It lost a little pizzazz. It's almost like it's become automatic. I think you need to freshen things up. I was it's thinking about building bridges, not barriers. Like, come on, really get into it. Like, let let us let us feel your enthusiasm for it. Well, not only the enthusiasm, but I think the the point of the show is shifted. So maybe the tagline needs to shift too. Maybe the tagline needs to shift. Maybe it's like, never mind, everybody. We are working on converts. We would like you to now convert. And we're we probably going to argue a ton. And chances are there'll be some barriers, so be prepared. <laughs> and you're not going to like this right. guest at all. <laughs> I kind of feel like this is a good work. I feel like this is a good workshop here. Go ahead and say. Go ahead and save this for future. This will be really helpful. I love it. I love it. <laughs> or maybe it's just because, like I told you in the pre-show, I've already had four shots of espresso in the last thirty minutes, and so maybe I am just overamped. And you have a completely acceptable energy level. <laughs> I think only good things can come from that fourth shot. <laughs> Something will. Hey, 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 it's good to it's good to hear your voice. It's good to be back with you. Always good to connect, man. I love having your voice on this show. If our listeners are not familiar, which at this point, I don't know how they wouldn't be. But where are you located and give us some of the work you do? I'm currently located in my garage in between two fans that are on silent mode. So as to keep me somewhat cool, but without blowing all that air into your ear holes. Um, and the garage is situated within my house, which is nestled on the corner of Cowles Mountain here in Northeast San Diego. And as far as what I do, I ask myself that every day, Joey, what am I doing? What? am i doing some days that feels really clear some days that feels really clear and i'm like you know what right now i am doing the work to show up to figure out who i am in life because i think there's a connection between individuals finding freedom and liberation and groundedness in their own sense of being with how that has this sort of ripple effect to their community and beyond so i part of my work is like if I can figure out a little bit more of what it means to be in alignment with what is true and good and real, I think that will have impact on the world. I really do. Uh, and then there's other days where I'm like, nah, none of that means anything. We're just wasting my time. I am just pushing a boulder up a hill that is bound to eventually crush me. I don't I like know what it. day you've got me on today, Joey. I like it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But isn't that how we all feel at times? Like there's there's a I, level of honesty in there. I, I'm so on my best days. Yes, 
I can tell myself, I think we're all doing that. And then, but on other days, I'm like, no, other people have it figured out, man. Other people know what they're doing and they've got their lane and it's clear. And yet, even when I say that out loud, I'm like, that is, that's gotta be garbage. <laughs> I know that's just a lie. I know we're all doing the best we can. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyway, to kind of finish wrapping up a little bit of maybe your question is I do yeah. co-pastor a church with my wife here in San Diego. We've been doing that for just over seven years. And the name of that church is Sojourn Grace Collective. We're a progressive Christian church. And uh, we just started resuming in-person gatherings at the 1st of August from after being a purely virtual church for 17 months. Wow. That is, that is, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the reality of that. Yeah. Because we had really gotten acclimated and used to doing virtual church. And now we're like back into setting up and tearing down our temporary church place and meeting other humans in a space with masks and awkwardness and tiredness. And I'm like, I kind of thought doing church because I've done it now for 20 years every Sunday morning. I kind of thought it'd be like riding a bike. Like just get back, you know, oh, we're meeting back in person again. But I think it's only like riding a bike if both tires are flat, the gears are broken, and I have two twisted ankles. Then it's a little bit like riding a bike. I love your analogies. They're so good. <laughs> I'm glad you do. <laughs> so, yeah, I also do a podcast with my wife called The Kate and Colby Show. I also host a weekly live show called The Altar. Uh, and then I've written a couple books and I don't know, I write some articles, which I think is what we're going to talk about today. So that's me, Colby Brenneman Martin. Oh, what a great, strong middle name. (laughs) Thank you. But yeah, you're right. We are talking about something you wrote and, uh, it was powerful when I read it. I think it's going to be transformative to how we approach a certain subject. So Give us a little bit of background. Uh, uh, let's paint the scenario a little bit. You're at a wedding, but it's not just any wedding. Give us some details. I love weddings, Joseph. I love, I love love is a way to that uh, that I say it. Uh, I get to officiate. Well, before the world shut down, I get to officiate. You know, multiple weddings a year. And they're one of my favorite things to do. I love meeting with the couples beforehand. I love planning out the ceremony. I love thinking through how to make this moment intentional and beautiful and meaningful and sacred. And sometimes they're religious and sometimes they're not. And as of um, what was in California, maybe seven years ago, sometimes the couple are same sex. Sometimes the couple are uh, opposite sex. And I've I've probably done at this point equal amount of, of both. And um but a couple of weeks ago, I was at the uh, a wedding of some uh, dear friends of my wife and mine's. wasn't officiating, which is fun sometimes, you know, to just attend the wedding of your friends and not be the one um, officiating. And uh, this friend of mine, uh, she's a lesbian, so she was marrying a woman. And there's something about, and I, and I write this in the post that you reference, uh, which people can go to colbymartin.substack.com. I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes. But there's something about gay and lesbian weddings, Joey, that to me have this extra like element, like it cranks the knob up to 11 just a little bit. Um, have you, have you been Joey to a a same sex wedding? I have. Yeah. Just one. Okay. Yeah. They, um, I don't, and I don't know if you're, I'm not going to say they're all 
they're all this way, but there's, there's something about the, 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 the energy. There's something in the air. There's something, there's just something a little extra special. Now, part of that, I would, I would argue or suggest not argue. I don't know if I'd argue this, but part of it is I would suggest is that my experience has been both meeting like queer people and being in close relationship with queer people. And also then just learning from those who are in the LGBTQ community. Part of it is that there is a, um, there is a, a, a deviation from the boring normalcy <laughs> when you start engaging and hanging out with those who are in the queer community. And what I mean by that is there are these, these, there are these roles that, that, you know, heteronormative culture plays these sort of puritanical uh, roles of expectations and sort of social niceties and politeness and sort of the expectations that we all play in social settings that when you start to hang out with queer people, you realize like they break all those rules, both consciously and unconsciously. And so there's a sense in which just hanging out with queer people, period, is more fun because there are not the roles and expectations that you sort of just default into. And we default into these because it's we see it in the movies that we watch and the TV shows that we we watch and we read it in the books and we see it modeled for us in our parents and we see it in, in, in the society at large. And so there's something about queer spaces, Joey, that I've discovered and learned are, can just be more interesting <laughs> because there isn't yeah, not everybody's playing these expected roles. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, you've been to enough weddings and you sort of know the familiar beats. And yet with with a same-sex marriage, there's almost a mystery, a, a curiosity that's that's just not present in, in the ones that you've seen all up until that point. Yeah, and it, but like by nature, they they will oftentimes um, disrupt the, the the norm, right? So you you... You may, you may or may not, but you, you may not have some of the traditional elements that you come to expect, which is the father walking down the bride and the language of who gives this woman to this man and the, the, the vows that are sort of very man, woman centric, and you may kiss your bride and I pronounce you husband and wife. So all these things that we've come to sort of expect, uh, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that, by the way, that all the things we've come to expect out of our kind of Western American wedding ceremonies, just by virtue of the couple itself, the, many of those will fall away. And so even that disruption of, uh, of the norm introduces a level of creativity and interest and intrigue because you're like, oh, how are they going to, how are they going to navigate this moment? Like, what are they going to say here? What, what sort of new rituals or ideas are they going to inject? So even that right there just provides this level of interest, but I've, I've often found it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just sort of creative and intriguing and interesting and fun. And this is what I mentioned in the piece is the second thing I'll say about uh, queer weddings is that I've also noticed that in addition to that, there is this, ah, this like this air of resistance, this air, this energy of, you know what, for, for many people that are there for our entire lives, we have felt in our own being that a day like this would never come. And we've been told externally by society, by the government, by our church, by our family, we've been told a day like this will never come for you. We've been told like this, 
this opportunity to stand in a public ceremony with a sacred degree of like this is set apart this is a special thing like we're we're gathering together to 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 center this couple and to focus our mind and our energies and our uh, on this public commitment queer people have been really told internally and externally that this this will never happen for you and so now that it can and does uh i have noticed this added element of like yeah yeah we, we we're here nice try you, you, you tried to hold us back. You tried to create a world in which this option wouldn't be available for us, and you failed. Like, your, your, your reign of oppression is over, and here we are. And in spite of everything that I've ever believed about what was possible, and in spite of, every, in spite of everything you've ever told me about what would be possible, um, we're here. We're here. And so they just, these, these, Queer weddings just have this air of, of defiance, this air of persistence, this air of victory to them. Like, look at us. We're doing the thing that people told us could not be done. Which then brings this question. You know, I think a lot of people in the heterosexual camp, specifically Christians, will still struggle with being at a same-sex wedding. Say you remove the Bible, does that table still stand? You know, if you take away people's responses of, well, the Bible says it's a problem, do you, do you still think that there would be opposition towards same-sex marriages from the Christian community? Uh... I mean, it's such a layered question. I, I understand that, but... You know, no, like, no, no. It's a, it, yeah, the question is great. I'm just taking a beat to to process it. It's really, I, I don't think we can overstate just how much the the Bible is like in the very DNA of our culture. Like, I, I, it's hard for me to really imagine. Because, uh, you know, America, for, for all intents and purposes, was sort of built on this puritanical um, ethic of what it means to build a liberal democracy. And that, you know, was modeled after, you know, England and, and Britain's idea of, of what it means to, to build a, you know, a, a decently moral uh, monarchy. Uh, and that was modeled after the, you know, the, the Roman Empire, which was, as we know, eventually infused with Christianity. So it's like when you when you start to look all the way back through where our current model of how we function as a society here in the West comes from, so much of it has its grounds and its roots in these uh, Judeo-Christian roots. And so when you ask a question like, if we take the Bible out of it, do you think people who identify as Christian would, would still have opposition to same-sex relationships. Like that's a really challenging question to answer. Uh, my, my initial instinct is to say, well, I, I don't think people would have an objection because I think most people's objections to the idea of homosexuality is rooted in this belief that the Bible opposes it. And because the Bible opposes it, therefore God opposes it. And since God opposes it, like 
we have no choice but to just acquiesce to this is the divine law. This is just what is. Now, I say all that, and I'm conscious that there might be people for whom they would develop alternative objections. I'm thinking of the crowds who really deeply believe that the only way to have a, a healthy functioning family is to have a man and a woman, you know, raise a child. But even in that, I don't know how I don't know how much that belief is informed by a Judeo-Christian quote unquote biblical worldview. Like I imagine even that would uh would fall away as well. So I guess that's my long way of saying, Joey, yes, I think if you take the Bible out of it, um, I have a hard time believing there would be much of an opposition to, to queer people getting married. And by just taking the Bible out of it, I think, I think the nuance of that is taking out the simplistic approach without context and, and, you know, things that you brilliantly dove into in our last episode of really understanding what scripture is talking about around same sex individuals. Yeah. And you know, the Bible is an interesting document for a number of reasons, but one of those is even to sort of trace how cultures, well, culture going back from, you know, ancient Jewish culture up through sort of the New Testament time, how they have tried to figure out what marriage is and how they've tried to figure out what sex is. And that has been, you know, that was a moving target. That was a developing idea as they, as they sort of designed these cultures and figured out maybe what it looked like to, to live in harmonious relationship to each other and to the earth and to, to their idea of who God is. And so you see, even in that, you know, m- many people will be like, no, look at the beginning, you know, Genesis three, that God created male and female, and you shall leave a husband, father and cleave. And like, no, God, from the beginning of everything has just showed us what marriage is. Well, I actually don't think that argument holds up. Like, I don't actually think that is what uh, this ancient Jewish creation story is all about, as, as, as though it's this idea that here is God's unchanging, permanent, static design and decree for marriage. That's not what that story is about. And it's certainly not how it then played out for the rest of Israel's history, as you saw you know, multiple wives and you saw uh, various expressions of what marriage looked like. So anyway, so the Bible is an interesting document for how it sort of uh, uh, chronicles individuals and communities wrestling with what what even is marriage? Like our, our, our idea of marriage today, Joey, as you know, is vastly different than it was thousands of years ago. And so to even say, I, I, got, I always just... I think it's funny when when Christians don't stop and think about this idea, like, for instance, oh, you can't have sex before marriage. Well, hold on. First of all, there's no Bible verse that says that. Second of all, what do you mean by marriage? If you're talking about like American idea of go down to a courthouse and get a document signed and then and then what? Because you have a notarized stamp on a piece of paper, now suddenly the God of the universe is like, all right, cool, go for it. Like now, now it's fine, but 30 seconds before it would have been a sin. Like these are some really, in my mind at least, some really um underdeveloped and immature ideas about what marriage is and about what sex is. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I don't know how we got to that topic, but we got there. We got there. Let's <laughs> 
I hate commercials, especially before, during, or after something you're trying to listen to, like a podcast. They're always trying to get you to buy something you don't need or the product has nothing to do with what I'm listening to. I don't need a jet ski. Shows do that to make money. And we at Dismantle Podcast hate interrupting your listening experience. To keep this channel ad-free, you can support us on anchor.fm. A monthly support of any amount allows us to continue to deliver great content and conversations while not needing to sell you a jet ski. Visit anchor.fm slash dismantlepod to sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Yes, even a dollar helps. Keep your headphones jet ski free. Visit anchor.fm slash dismantlepod. Talk to me about what you noticed on the dance floor. Okay, so this was this is what I write about, and this was there was this this moment. So the the you know the, the couple, the ceremony had happened, and people were sort of milling about at the reception, uh, drinking their wines and their gin and tonics, and eating their little uh, appetizers. And then the the you know the the DJ called everybody over to circle up around the dance floor. And there was a gal there who was providing the background music on her guitar. And she started to strum these chords. I'm like, hey, I think I know this song. Um, and as she started singing out, uh, I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't, we sing this song at our church. What is the song? And then she keeps singing. I'm like, oh yeah, this is the song from The Greatest Showman. The, um, this, it's called This Is Me. And not only was she starting to sing that, but I noticed, wait a minute, this is the couple's first dance. Like they're they're walking toward each other on the dance floor. And so they begin to, you know, embrace as a newly married couple as the singer begins to sing the song, uh, the song This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. And first of all, I love this song. Um, like I said, we sing this at our church, and it's just a great anthem for so many reasons. But I also realized, oh, this is a perfect song for this moment as my two friends are sealing their commitment to each other with this sacred covenant of marriage. Um, and I'm like listening to the lyrics for, uh, in the context of this. And, and there's these words, like I've, I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. This is what the song says. Um, we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars run away. They say they being like, the community, the world around us, run away. No one will love you as you are. And I'm listeners, hopefully you've seen The Greatest Showman at this point, or at least if not, then hopefully you've heard this song, because um, this song is really a beautiful song. And so as, as the verse one sort of closes and my friends are dancing, this thought begins to occur to me. And I thought to myself, oh man, I hope the two of them tune all of us out. Because, you know, they were surrounded by, I don't know, maybe a hundred people or so. And we're all, all of our eyes and all of our energy were like, we're laser focused on the couple dancing to the song. And I had this thought, oh man, I hope, I hope they ignore us. I hope they tune us out. And that was immediately followed by, that's a weird thought. Like, why, why is that my thought? And I got curious about that. Like, why, why am I concerned about them ignoring us? And then I realized, this, oh, it's just classic project. Like, I'm just projecting onto them what I would be. Because um, I realized, Joey, that if that were me dancing in the middle of a circle of people, I would be, like, 
overly concerned about what people are thinking and seeing as they watch me. And I would be overly invested in projecting this image of, all right, I got to make sure I smile really big. I got to make sure um, maybe I'll, maybe I'd sing along to the song um, or, or, you know, just make a big show of it. Like I would essentially, I would be like earning their, the eyeballs um, admiration. Be like, okay, you're looking at me. I'm going to put on a show for you. I'm going to, I'm going to, to make sure that you enjoy yourself. Cause right. This is a, uh, I can't remember if we talked about the Enneagram together, Joey, uh, or not, but I'm a type three on the Enneagram, which is sometimes called the achiever or the performer. And it's part of our type is that we are just overly invested in our image and how people are perceiving us. And our fundamental belief is that who we are as we are is not enough. So therefore we got to perform for people to earn their respect, earn their admiration and so on. And so I'm watching my friends dance and I'm thinking, oh man, I hope they ignore us. I hope they just soak up this moment. Like, I hope you just tune in. Like all you need to do is just enjoy the, each other and enjoy this moment. And then I realize, oh, that's because if it were me, I would be hustling for my worth as Brene Brown says. Um, anyway, yeah. So I'll stop right there and let you, let you jump in before I keep going. Cause I realize I'm just, I'm saying a lot of words. Well, that that's exactly what I was going to ask. You know, why do we struggle with that? Why, yeah. why do we wrestle with being seen for who we are? I think we'd all very quickly answer, well, because we don't want to be rejected and, you know, I'm not dismissing that there is, there is an element to that, but it seems like there's more to just the rejection. So like what's, what's underneath that struggle for being seen for who we are. I mean, I would imagine it it varies for for different people. I can I can only speak to myself, which is to say, I somewhere along the way, and this is some you know unique cocktail of nature and nurture. So both how I was born and then also the context in which I was raised. Somewhere along the way, I internalized and received the message that like I am not worthy that i i am not um yeah that i'm not worthy to be seen as, as who i am and that's one of the one of the lyrics of the song says uh and i know that i deserve your love there's nothing i'm not worthy of and for me like that is not a message that comes naturally that is not a belief that i that i carry around with me my, my sort of fundamental, and, and, you know, like I said, part of that's my Enneagram number. Part of that is the religion that I was raised in. Conservative, evangelical Christianity really spends a lot of its capital on convincing humans that we are not worthy, that we are depraved, totally depraved, that we are uh, fallen sinners, that we are separated, separate from God in need of redemption, in need of all the things that we are just, we're, we're, we're garbage so much so that God can't even stand the sight of us. I mean, think about that for a second, Joey, like what, what does that say about God? If God can't even stand the sight of a human being who just happened to be born. No, as far as I know, and maybe the movie Soul from Pixar is correct. Maybe souls do get to like choose. Yeah, hey, I want to be born. But as far as I know, like we don't really have any choice in the matter. We're just born. Uh, and part of religion's message is, oh yeah, and that instantly makes you worthless. That instantly makes you 
um, unlovable. So anyway, I don't know what it means, how other people get there, but the way I get there, it's a combination of religion, combination of my personality type. Uh, but yeah, I don't feel like I'm, I, I'm worthy of love as I am. And so, as I said a minute ago, that's why I perform. That's why I achieve. That's why I, I try and do good things. I try and do great things. I try and make great things in the world. Oh, if I write a good book, then people will like me. Uh, oh, if I do a good podcast, then then I'll earn people's respect and admiration. Oh, if I perform the funny guy over here, people people seem to like that. Oh, if I perform the the smart guy over here, people people will really be drawn to that. I'll, I'll play that role now. So when I'm watching my friends dance on the floor, I'm like, oh yeah, if that were me, I would be like, what role do I need to play now? Do I need to do I need to look like I'm the guy in love who's really enjoying this first dance? Do I need to look like the performer who's hamming it up and um, drawing all eyeballs on me? There's a, another line in the song that says, um, look out because here I come and I'm marching onto the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. And I guess what I'm saying, Joey, is that most of the times I am scared to be seen. <laughs> the real naked me without all the glam, without all the image and the projection. Uh, most of the times I am scared to be seen. And so I cover that up with all the things that I mentioned a minute ago. So then, Colby, how do we how do we dance, essentially? You know, how do we begin to engage with a God who wants us to be who we are when everything around us from our past uh, experiences with church, our family, it's all about control. It's about rejection, subjugation. You know, how do we how do we break free from that and and, you know, basically get our ass on the dance floor? Yeah. I. I wonder if part of the path there begins by naming that we have stories in our heads that have been given to us stories that we tell stories that we live out and part of it begins by by naming what those stories are so that we can start to tell a different story and some of these stories are ancient some of these stories are are like they're they you could almost say they're they're biologically imbued in our bones. These stories are so old. And so it might be tempting to to blame the evangelical church. And I, I don't think that's entirely fair, even if the evangelical church has really become experts at it, <laughs> experts at this story. I, I don't think we can put all the 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 blame on on their shoulders because because one of these stories, Joey, goes all the way back. And it shows up in the, 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 the creation story of that, that belonged to the ancient Jewish people. So when you read the story of Adam and Eve, now I don't personally read this as like a historical account of how the cosmos came into being. That's, in my opinion, that's not at all what the ancient Jews thought they were writing when they wrote it or were intending to convey. So one of the things that jumps out to me when I read these ancient stories is what the Jewish folk were trying to say about who their God was, uh, who their God Yahweh was, and primarily that was to contrast with the other gods, like the Babylonian gods around them. Part of to say this is who God is, and part of to say this is who we think we are. This is what we've come to discover about what it means to be human. And when you read the story of Adam and Eve, 
you realize that there's this moment where after they eat the tree of the, or eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is to say, now they are able to discern between good and evil. Now they're able to know what's right, what's wrong. Now they're able to have judgment, which is interesting that that's the one thing that God's like, you know what? Everything is for you, but that one tree over there, that one capacity to know what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. I, I really think that's a, a, a um, an insight that should be kept for me. <laughs> and I think that that has been proven out over the years, hasn't it? That humans, when we think we can discern between right and wrong and who's good and who's bad, we muck that up almost every single time. But anyway, so they eat of the this fruit and, and their eyes are opened and suddenly they realize, oh, we're naked. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we are completely naked. We're now seeing ourselves and each other for the first time with these new eyes that see good, bad, right, wrong. And they immediately went and made clothes for themselves to cover up. And one of the things that stands out to me in the story is this is, this is shame at work. Shame is who you are is bad. Not what you do is bad. We, we all do quote unquote bad things. We all do things that hurt ourselves and hurt each other. That's, that's totally, I think, uh, that makes sense to say. I have no, no objection to that. But, to, but shame then moves it to who you are is bad. And so Adam and Eve are like, oh, we, as we are, naked and fully uh, us is not good. We need to cover up. Shame tells us that we are not good. We are not enough just as we are. Shame tells us that people will only like us. They'll only respect us. They'll only enjoy us. They'll only love us. If I'm more like this, less like that, look like this, whatever it is. And I think so to answer your, to your question, like, how do we start? How do we kind of get out of that? Part of it is the name that this story of shame has been told for thousands and thousands of years that who we are is not enough. And when we can, when we can see that for what it is, which I would argue is not a fundamental truth of the, <laughs> of what it means to be human, I would argue instead, it is a story that has sort of made its way into our cultures and civilizations for uh, civilizations. <laughs> It's made its way into our cultures and civilizations for a really long time. When we can name it as a story, then we can begin to, I would say, cast a vision for a different story. We can push back against that story. And I think that's part of what Jesus was doing, by the way. I think that's part of why Jesus is an antidote to so much of religion is because it casts a different story. A story that doesn't say you are separate from God. This is what shame tells us, that we are not good or not worthy that God is, 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 can't even look at us, God is separate from us. And Jesus comes along and says, actually, I, I don't think you are separate from God. I don't think there actually is a chasm that needs to be overcome. Um, anyway, so I think that's part of the, the way out, Joey, is that we, we see it as just a story, not as a fundamental truth of reality. And then we can begin to uh, cast a different story for ourselves. Those are great insights, dude. Thank you. And you know, thanks so much for being on the show again. Uh, you know, as I've asked you two other times, I'm going to ask you one more time because our, our times keep changing. And so maybe your perspective will change on it as well. But, 
you know, given this topic that we were just talking about, given our climate, given the the terrain that we're navigating now as as churches are in person or not in person, politics, all these things that are going on, how does the church walk in more unity? How do we take issues that divide us and 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 choose to walk together instead of separate? I think actually my response to this is in many ways what would have been the follow-up to the the previous question or maybe the culmination of the previous question because I, I think they're I think they're linked. So not only do we have to identify shame as a, an ancient story that deserves being exposed. Um, but then we need to tell a new story. And I think that new story is the story that we are fundamentally loved by God. And I get that for people that brings up all sorts of follow-up questions. are like, what do you mean by God? What do you mean by loved? I, I get that. And we can have those conversations and we can work through that. But I, I think we begin with this um, with this story of as Jesus came out of the waters of, of baptism, um, those who were there heard as though a voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And I think part of what that story does is like, oh, this word spoken over Jesus is the same, I believe, word spoken over every human being. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. So shame tells us we're not enough, we're broken as who we are, we're not lovable. The story of Jesus, the story of love is that, no, you are just as you are. You are loved by God. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to hustle for it. You can really just dance. You can really just enjoy life, enjoy you, enjoy the love without having to hustle or earn or perform. You can just dance to the beat of the drum of love because you are love you are loved and so i think that leads into that 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 last question which is the more we can begin to for our own selves tell this new story believe this new story internalize this new story that i am a loved child of of god full stop, just as I am, the more that we can believe it and embody it and just dance, um, then suddenly what happens is we, we start seeing others in the same way. We start demanding less of others. We start, uh, or we stop expecting that people would think the same way as us because we realize, wait a minute, it doesn't, what if beliefs isn't really the thing? We stop, we stop demanding that people live in the same way that we live because we realize, wait, what if there is a freedom within your identity as a love child of God so that we don't all have to look and think and act the same? So I think part of how we do that is part of how we learn to, to live in unity and community with one another is that we understand that just as I am loved as I am, so are you. So are you. And so I won't try to control you. I won't try to convince you to cover up because I myself am stopped trying to find fig leaves to cover up my shame. And then together we can, I think, as we tell these stories individually that I am loved, we can start to, to now, I think, begin to really begin to imagine what it means when Jesus says the greatest command is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then 
love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we got to figure out what does that mean to love myself? Once I got that on lock, oh, now I can give that love away to others without control, without expectation, without manipulation. And this, my friend, is how I think the world can change. Powerful, man. Thank you. And again, thanks for being on the show. If people wanted to connect with you online, how can they do it? Joey, I like you. Thanks for inviting me back. I really appreciate that. Um, thanks for hosting me. Thanks for asking good questions. Thanks for 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 listening to my long-winded uh, speakings. If people want to find me, I think I say this every time. Just just Google my name. Super easy. Um, Colby Martin. There it is. I, I pop up on Googs. Uh, easy to find. That's my Instagram handle at Colby Martin. Same with Twitter. Um, so real, real easy. I believe, I believe in you, the listener's power to find me. We'll throw it in there, man. But again, <laughs> thanks for being on. Thanks, bud. And that wraps up today's episode of Dismantle Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you heard and you want to support the work of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash dismantlepod. There's tons of cool incentives that you can get for monthly access and support. So visit us at patreon.com slash dismantlepod. You can shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. We're on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. <laughs>